Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. We are back after taking a couple of weeks off from recording. And today, as I sit here and record, I am in my basement at my house, which is where I often record the podcasts. But it's the day after we got about two feet of snow here in Denver. And so I had planned on being home alone and having a nice, quiet space to record the podcast, but um, we are all home from work, and my kids are home from school, and so if you hear any background noise, banging, yelling, laughing, music, well, I guess welcome to um, one part of <laughs> of my life, and so uh, it may not be as quiet, but I still want to record this today because I'm recording this one year to the day that we first aired an online service at Denver Community Church because of the pandemic. And so today, I just want to explore some reflections one year later, one year after the pandemic. But before we get to that, first, I want to share some exciting news with all of you. Many of you know about a retreat that I lead called the Blueprint Retreat. Um, This is a time for us to gather together with others who've left their spiritual home and are filled with questions and doubts and skepticism and curiosity Um, This is a place for people who've let go of the answers that they've been given, but also have a deep sense within that there's something more to be discovered. This is people who are in a place where um, they deconstructed and they've deconstructed so much, they've begun to say, well, maybe we need to dream about the work of constructing something together and to sketch a faith for the next season with the hopes that maybe we could be a part of building a renewed faith, a renewed spirituality. And that's what the Blueprint Retreat is. Now, last year at this time, we had a whole bunch of people signed up to go in April 2020. And of course, no surprise, we had to cancel. And at that time, I pushed the retreat off to November 2020. And no surprise, (laughs) I canceled it again. But now, now we are on the books for the next Blueprint Retreat for Friday, May 14th through Sunday, May 16, at the Ure Ranch Lodge in Granby, Colorado. Uh, We're going to keep it smaller, um, but we're going to have the space to do this. We're going to do a bunch of it outside, and I would love for you to join with us. It's a time of conversation, of contemplation, of discussion, of meeting people like you who are also in a similar place on the journey and getting to know them and their stories. And honestly, this is one of my favorite things that I get to do because I get to know so many of you and uh, so many people who join on these retreats. So again, space is really, really limited for this go-round. And so if you are interested, you can go to my website, michael-hidalgo.com backslash blueprint, all one word, michael-hidalgo.com backslash blueprint. And you can learn more about the retreat and you can register there. And as always, if you have any questions, you can just use the contact form on my website to ask away. So that's it for announcements, because for today, we're going to explore some reflections uh, one year into this pandemic, one year after everything was shut down, one year after we were forced indoors, one year ago, ordering takeout from restaurants became commonplace. Tiger King was a thing. And by the way, I honestly, I had no idea that Tiger King was based on like a real life person. And um, because I only ever saw like articles about it or pictures about it. And so my wife and I began watching it. And about 
don't know, 10, 15 minutes into the first episode, I was like, this is real? Like this really happened? And every time something else would happen, I just, I spent the whole thing completely blown away that this actually really happened because I always thought it was, I don't know, some sort of like staged or written production. Then I learned otherwise. But one year ago, we learned about working at home. One year ago, our kids were thrown into the world of online learning. Our world was reshaped overnight. We were thrown into the unknown. We had zero idea one year ago today of what we were in the middle of. Um, When I made the first announcement about moving our worship gatherings at Denver Community Church online, we sent that out to our faith community on March 13. And I announced at that time that we would suspend all in-person gatherings for three weeks and that we would return to normal on Easter Sunday, April 12. (laughs) So we can look back at that now and along with a host of other things, just recognize how off we were in our estimation because we had no idea one year ago what was happening, what was unfolding in our midst. And so today, a year later, well, we definitely know a bit more. We've adjusted in many ways to pandemic life, but we still don't really know what's around the corner for us. But we've come this far. I mean, we have made it one whole year. And so today, I want to offer a few reflections on this season. These are really things that I've been talking about with my friends, learning about, reading about, thinking, and and learning in this season. And so first, uh, first reflection, I want to talk about memory. I want to ask, how do we remember this season well? Second, I want to consider time and our experience of it and what it means for the future. And then third, I want to return to my first podcast that came out after the pandemic began, like after shutdown and everything else, and offer some thoughts on where we are today with regard to the journey that we talked about beginning one year ago. So with that said, let's jump in and talk about first, how do we remember well? Now, over the weekend, I heard and read many things about the one-year anniversary of covid Stories of of people's lives in work, in living situations, and how they were affected. Stories of those who contracted COVID very early on, some of whom still experience these bizarre and varied symptoms. Stories, of course, of, of the many who passed away. People sharing about where they were when they learned of shutdown and how they responded. On and on, all of these stories. Now, this is a really positive thing that we are talking about it, that we are remembering it. And we need to do this because if we do not, we will in time forget or we will create a story around it that may not actually be true. So we need to tell the stories now. And I say we need to remember because this pandemic is now a part of our story. It's a part of our story individually and is a part of our story collectively. It is a piece of who we are. It's a piece of what makes us now who we are as individuals and as really a global community. And we can learn a lot about this idea of remembering from our Jewish friends and how they understand memory and history and remembering. The most common command in Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, 
The Jewish people call it Torah, which means instruction. Sometimes it's translated as the law. The most common command in the first five books of the Bible is remember. Remember the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Over and over and over, there's this idea of remember, 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 remember. Now, the Hebrew word here for remember is the word zakar. As a matter of fact, the name Zechariah, zakar, ya, means God remembers. Zakar is the Hebrew word there. And this idea of zakar, to remember, it was, and it still is, essential according to the Jewish tradition and the Jewish consciousness. So to remember for them, by the way, is not just about history. It's not just telling stories about the past, but it's understanding how a story is actually a part of who they are. There's a rabbi named Mendel Kelmanson, and he wrote this about memory and history. He said, there is no word for history in the Hebrew language. The absence of a word as central to any nation as history is striking. It's probably because there's no such thing as history in Judaism. Zakar, to remember, features prominently in biblical language and thought. It goes far beyond semantics, cutting straight to the core of Judaism's perception of the past. Memory is a part of me and history apart from me. Memory is a part of me, history apart from me. Without me, there is no memory. Put differently, he continues, history is made up of objective facts and memory of subjective experience. As you might have guessed, Judaism is less interested in dry facts than in breathing experiences. It is for this reason that much of Jewish tradition and ritual draws on reenactment. We don't just commemorate, we remember. We don't just recount someone else's story, we relive our own. Rabbi Mendelssohn says, no, no, this is not just about like facts that we memorize about something that happened way long ago. These are stories that we commemorate and we tell them, and in telling them, they become our own, and in becoming our own, we actually relive them. Now, you may have experienced this if you've ever participated in a Seder meal or the Passover meal with uh, any Jewish friends, because when you hear their language, they talk about their liberation from slavery from the nation of Egypt, and they don't say, when our ancestors were enslaved in Egypt. Or they don't say when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. They say when we were slaves in Egypt. When we were slaves in Egypt. There's a sense in which they're participating in the story. They're reenacting it. And by reenacting it, they're reliving it. And so for them, the memory, the story, the liberation, all of that is a part of their identity. It's a part of who they are. That this story has somehow shaped them as a people, as a nation, as a religious tradition, as their ethnicity. And I point this out because it could be very tempting to look at this season objectively, this pandemic as history. And, and by the way, we will because that's what we do. 
And so what will happen is one day we'll read about this in a book or an article and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about that part of the pandemic. Or, oh yeah, I forgot that that happened. But for us in this moment, as we consider how do we remember well, this is not history. This is memory. And so I say that because what happens is if it's memory, then we say, well, now the pandemic is a part of my story. This pandemic has shaped me somehow. It's done something to me. I may not even at this point be fully conscious of it, but it has done something in me and it has done something to me and it's done something to and in our culture. What impact has it had on us? What has it done to our psyches? What has it meant for us to lose so much in such a small period of time? See, it's the memory of this, that which is a part of our subjective experience that will inform who we are and it will inform who we become in the days ahead. That's the difference between static facts that are history and a subjective experience that we've lived through something together. And so as we remember this, how do we begin saying, how has this shaped me? Because this is a part of me, not a part from me. Now, within the Christian tradition, we know, actually know a thing or two about this because this is like the symbol or the picture or the metaphor behind Eucharist. If, you know the, the, you, if you're familiar with the Eucharistic liturgy that comes from Jesus and later from St. Paul, it's that Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples who were with him. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance or do this to remember me. This is not a statement of historical fact. It's an invitation to reenact this meal it's an invitation to reenact it, to bring our own life to the table, to bring our own subjective experiences to the table, and in doing so, participate in this meal with Jesus and with every other person who's ever participated in this meal. See, this is a memory. There's something about the Eucharist that's not just stating hard, cold, propositional truths but it's inviting us to see who we are. St. Augustine used to say to his worshipers as he would put the wafer on their tongue, receive what you are. You are the body of Christ. Receive what you are. This is what, this commemorating, this reenactment, this is what it can do. And this can be a very healthy and helpful step for us as we consider how do we remember this season, how do we remember this pandemic one year in, how do we remember it well? Now, of course, there's going to be histories written about it and they have their place. But keep in mind, that is apart from me, that is apart from you. But how will we then document and memorialize our subjective experiences from this season? How will we not just recount the story, but how will we relive our own stories in the midst of it. Now, of course, some of you may not want to think about the season down the road. Like you just want to get past it. You just want to get through it. I had a friend who texted me just, I think it was sometime last month. And he said, I'm so over this pandemic crap. And I replied saying, 
oh, I was over this pandemic crap in April 2020. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I know anyone who would raise their hand and voluntarily go through a season like this again, ever. And at one level, I get that. But if we forget, if we forget, we lose a piece of who we have become and who we are becoming. Because this season, for good or bad, it has shaped us individually. It shaped us culturally and collectively. And if we do not remember, if we do not memorialize, if we do not relive it at some level, then we will not learn how to integrate this into who we are. If we forget, we will not have the pieces necessary to integrate it into our larger story. And if we do not integrate this, then we will have a more difficult time moving toward the wholeness and the healing that is needed coming out of this. Parker Palmer writes about living a whole life, and one of the things he points out is the struggle we seem to have with integrating what we see as broken parts of our lives and stories. You know, the places and spaces that we'd like to forget, the skeletons in our closet that we want to like cover up and not talk about and bury. And by the way, it's really tempting to do that. But I wonder, what if there's a God who wastes nothing? I've actually made this comment to my kids a lot over the years that God wastes nothing. They make they they do something stupid and like in my in my best parenting moment, I'm just like, well, God wastes nothing. Like there's something to be learned from this, there's something to be gained from this. And I believe this to be true with all of me. I mean, like honestly, who cares if there's a God who can only make something beautiful and whole with all the good stuff of life? I mean, who can't do that? Who can't make that happen? And isn't this how we choose, by the way, to live most of our lives? Like we, we choose to try to make our, our lives look good and pretty and presentable and worthy. Like as though those are the only parts of life that matter. But that's not really what shapes us, is it? I mean, maybe one of the reasons we live in such a shallow and immature culture in our country is precisely because we only want and have come to expect and even demand the good things. But that is not what makes us who we are. What really shapes us is the difficult moments and the hard times and the events that befall us that we would never have asked for, like a global pandemic. Now, sure, we want to get out of them as quickly as possible. Why wouldn't we? It hurts. But what would happen if we learned to integrate those things? Believing that God actually wastes nothing. Like, what if we took time to remember? And when I say remember, I mean like to document and to record our subjective experience in this pandemic. What if we took time to relive it? To tell our stories to one another? Not to see it as a past distant memory apart from me, but a moment that lives with and within us because it caused something to happen to us. It did something to shape us. Understanding then that no matter how many years past this we are, this will always in some ways still be alive in us and within our culture. And even cultures down the road will be shaped by this, which means that this is like a living memory that we will long carry with us. 
Now to remember this way, it's hard work because we really are a people who are really into progress. And this works, uh, progress and our, our attitude works against this idea of remembering because this is not about like moving up and to the right as quickly as possible. Rather, it's about taking time to sit in the moment, to reflect, to pause, to look within, to dig deep. It's a time to acknowledge the loss that we have all experienced. It's a time to reckon with the fact that over 500,000 people in this country alone have died from COVID and we're moving towards 600,000. And that amount of death does something to us at a subconscious, like a collective unconscious level. Like we're going to carry that with us. In many ways, working to remember well in a season like this, it's a descent, which is the opposite of our culture. It's a descent to pain, to darkness, to grief. We are not practiced at grief. As Rilke wrote in his poem called Pushing Through, he said, I don't have much knowledge yet in grief, so this massive darkness makes me small. I don't have much knowledge yet in grief, so this massive darkness makes me small. And we don't like not having much knowledge. We don't like feeling small which is something that we need to overcome so that we can move more fully toward wholeness. And maybe a first step in remembering well is just to to grieve, to grieve everything we've lost in this season, to name it, to honor it, to weep over it, to memorialize it, and in doing so, see it for what it is, and then we can remember it well. And then we might have eyes to see how it has and will shape us in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. And by the way, I do believe this will take years. And I believe that while medical science and their vaccines may provide a somewhat speedy end to the pandemic, our psychic and psychological healing will take far longer. I was emailing with uh, the psychotherapist and author Francis Weller recently about this, and he called the season ahead of us the long darkness. He said, this is a time in which we're going to have to grapple with all that has been lost, and it will not be quick. I read that and I was like, oh man, no, because I like things to move quickly. If you know anything about me, like let's get on with it, get solution side, figure this stuff out, keep going. But this is not going to move quickly. He tells a story, um, Francis Weller tells a story about his first meeting with his mentor, where his mentor put his hand on a rock and said, this is my clock because the soul moves at geologic speed. And then he pointed at a clock on the wall and said, this is the enemy. (laughs) Because this is a lifelong journey. And it requires patience and compassion, primarily with ourselves. It it demands and invites courage. But I think if we can remember well, if we can see ourselves as constant participants, if we can see ourselves in this living memory that has shaped us and will shape us in our culture for years and years and years, that if we can do that, 
then we just might learn how to integrate all of this into our journey, into our lives, and we will learn more deeply how it has worked us and shaped us, and we will begin to understand that there is a God that wastes nothing, and this can lead us toward greater and greater wholeness. Now, as we talk about this idea of years and days and months, looking ahead, that brings us to the second reflection, and that is time and the future. Now, I imagine you, like me, have had many moments throughout the year where you've wondered what day it is, or you find yourself talking about something that happened, and you're like, was that, was that last week or that yesterday? Was that, a, was that a month ago? And it seemed worse, by the way, early on in the pandemic when it was like really completely and totally locked down. And it seemed worse um, around the holidays and the winter when we would just been indoors so much. But there was always this like, <laughs> when did that happen? There's a sense in which we've lost our sense of time. Like we, in some ways it feels really compressed and in other ways it seems really expanded. This season has messed with our understanding of time because the way we make sense of time in our modern context is we think about it in terms of past and future. So we keep track of seconds and minutes and hours, and we see it as time passing by, or we might say like we're moving through it. So there's like the time that is in front of us, the future, and then the time that's behind us, which is the past. And then wherever we find ourselves is always the present. So we think of either like time passing or us moving through it. And this picture refers to us looking back and looking ahead. The past is that which has happened. We cannot change it and we can never return to it. The future is that which is potential. It's unknown. And at some point we'll enter into it. And even that which is future will one day become past. And what divides the past and the future is the now, the present. And whether we are conscious of it, at all times, no matter where we find ourselves, we're always thinking in terms of past and future. Now, again, I mean, we understand this. This is not like a huge, massive insight. We know this. We live it every single day. But what's really interesting is that humanity's understanding of time has not always been past and future. In early human consciousness, time was not understood as the past, that which could not be changed, in the future, that which has potential, with us standing between the two things. Early human beings understood time by the return of the same, or they understood time according to patterns. They began to observe that the universe was repetitive. It was on a cycle, and they could observe the patterns, and they were simply a part of it. So each morning, they experienced the return of the same, or the same pattern, when the sun would rise and then it would set. They experienced the same thing each month when the moon would appear as a crescent and then become this large celestial disk in the sky and then it would fade to a crescent again before disappearing altogether only to reappear some days later on the same pattern or the same cycle. Every year, they experienced the same patterns, whether it was the stars in the sky or whether it was plowing and planting and then harvesting day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they saw patterns. It was the return of the same, and they were part of it. This is how our ancient ancestors understood time, how they experienced and knew time. But what's happened now is that we in our modern place think 
past, present, future. But what's happened these days is that we've been forced back to an ancient way of understanding time, and that is the return of the same or patterns. This is what many of us have experienced during the pandemic, and it's really, really disorienting. I read an article that referred to our sense of losing our orientation to the future and the past. What the pandemic has done is it's just caught us in a cycle. And we only measure time by the return of the same. It was the same thing the day before. Like, how many days have I worn these sweatpants? Every day is the same. Every day feels like the day before. Every day feels like the day after. Time has devolved into unstructured mush because our experience is no longer past, present, and future. It's the same thing every day for one year and counting. And we experience time this way because there's very little new for us to experience. Now, originally, this was all brand new and Man, there were some great memes that came out and people, you know, talked about different ways they're connecting. There was the virtual happy hours and everything else. But as it moved on and deeper into this, there was nothing new. And whenever we find something new, our brains register, we get a small hit of dopamine and our brains register that and store it as memory. So at the neurological level, this is a marker for us in our modern context, and it becomes like the past, and we unconsciously mark time from that place. But when these memories or these, this like novel stuff, when that disappears, time morphs into a blob. And so, again, something new happens like a pandemic. Well, we enter it, and there's all sorts of things that we do and create and everything else, but eventually it becomes routine and then normal and then expected. And by like a month and a half into this thing, all we experienced was the return of the same. So even now, as we're talking about the pandemic being one year old, some of you might think, man, I swear this just began a month ago. Some of you might be like, no, 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 this, this began a decade ago. Because when we are untethered from the rhythm of daily life, time itself becomes elastic. So sometimes it feels like it can move quickly ahead, but then it can suddenly snap back like right in our face. This is what happens when we struggle how to process the passage of time when there's no past and there's no future. There's a fellow who studies the impact of time on human development. His name is Felix Ringel. And he talked about what we're experiencing in the pandemic is a feeling of being stuck in this eternal present that we can't make sense of what's behind or what's ahead. There was an, uh, a reporter named Alan Johnston and he years ago was held captive by guerrilla fighters for four months and he was held in a dark cell. And he said that time for him became like this living thing. He said it was a crushing weight after a while. And he said it was endless because like you have no experience of time. So you don't even... You stop thinking about getting freed because you don't know if you're going to get freed or if that will ever happen. Every single day in captivity was the same for him. And so he lost all sense of time because there was nothing to mark the time. And this is how it's been for us. And so all of this, this is what makes talk of the future so difficult. Like when we entered this season one year ago, people were making all sorts of bold predictions. And by the way, can we all just be honest and say most of us were wrong <laughs> in the predictions that we made? Because there was no consistency 
um, to, to the predictions that, that we were hearing. We were confused, and as the days wore on, it increasingly felt like this is never, ever going to end. And as that feeling sunk in, our sense of the future grew dimmer. But, but here's the thing in all of this. We have never actually known the future. I feel like there should be like a sound effect right there and like a round of applause <laughs> for that amazing insight, right? I mean, this is not groundbreaking, but we've never known the future, ever. But isn't it interesting how we live most of our days pretending like we do? And, and how much energy do we give to this? I mean, we make plans and we schedule things and we have our five-year plan at the company. We spend our time, or we spend our time before we're ever given it. And what's interesting is we become like this future-obsessed culture. Is it any wonder that our anxiety is like at an all-time high individually and as a, as a collective people? Because our anxiety is connected to our obsession with the future. And this pandemic has caused us to very clearly see what has always been true. We have no guarantees. We know nothing about the future, and we never have. We don't know squat. And it's like the pandemic with this like disappearance of past, present, and future is just like rubbing our faces in this reality without mercy. But I wonder, what does this have to teach us? Like, what if we learned to hold the future with open hands? What if we just became those who would say, well, I want to, or I have a longing for, or we're planning on, but I'm kind of a shrug of the shoulders. My mentor used to use the phrase all the time, Lord willing, uh, which may not be your vernacular. I finally asked him one day, like, why do you say this? And he's like, oh, just a reminder that it may not happen. Yeah, well, I might go vacation here and here and here, Lord willing. Like it may happen, may not. Like what if this is how, what if this is how we learn to hold the future? That this disappearance of past, present, and future, this pattern, this return of the same, what if instead of resisting it, we surrender to it? Like what if we learned to surrender to whatever comes our way, even when it interferes with our plans and our hopes and our dreams? Because it's tempting like to settle back into our rhythm when the world returns to normal, whatever that new normal will be. Because this sense of, of knowing we don't know about the future can be really upsetting, upsetting. So we could easily go back to pretending like we have confidence in knowing how things will turn out. But if we're honest, that's always been a little bit shaky. But what if we could return um, with a renewed understanding and posture toward the future? And what if we allowed that to take root within us? What if we lived in the days ahead with greater humility, knowing we actually don't know and we're okay with that? What if we recognize that we don't know and we were just willing to hold that with very open hands? Like what, what might this do for our anxiety? What might it do for our worry? What could our lives look like in the days ahead if we did this? Maybe... Maybe we'd find ourselves being more present to the one moment that we've been given because that's all we ever have in the first place. What will our lives look like in the days ahead? 
And it's that last question that leads me to return to the third reflection, which is really a return to my first podcast after the pandemic began. And then I want to offer uh, some thoughts on where we are today with regard to our journey. So on March 24, 2020, episode 55 of the Changing Faith podcast, <laughs> now we here we are 21 episodes later. Uh, but on that episode, I talked about the new world that we entered and said that we had crossed a threshold. So our world, as we know, it changed in what felt like seconds. And early on, like every news story, it was like this, this world, this pandemic, this shutdown was changing every second. It was With every news story, there was another announcement, something new from a governor or another political leader. There was a new perspective on the virus. There was information about the virus that we didn't know yesterday. We didn't even know what to call it at first. COVID-19 came sometime later. Um, we were trying to define what was normal. We were attempting to understand what we could and could not do and the things that we shouldn't do. And by the way, these weren't, we're not talking about big things here. I mean, there was questions about tasks as simple as going to the grocery store or how do we connect with friends or how do we speak with our neighbors or what does it look like for me to go to the bank or how do I work at my job? How do I travel? How do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we, I mean, it was just normal things. And if you think about all of the things that I just listed, grocery store, going to the bank, working at your job, traveling, we have an unconscious competence when it comes to doing these things. It's just on autopilot. All of a sudden now, we became consciously competent. Like we still knew how to do it, but we had to ask all sorts of questions about exactly how we were going to do it. It's like if you've ever driven uh, a stick shift, over time you stop thinking about it. And then one day you have to teach somebody else and you're like, um push the clutch in and then have it in first and then like watch the needle, but not too much because you got to keep your eyes on the road. But then you just listen to the sound of the engine and then like take your foot off the gas and push in the clutch and then put it in the second. And then the car like bucks and you, it becomes so natural that you have to almost rewind your own learning so that you can teach someone else how to do it. A few weeks ago, I was skiing with my youngest daughter and she was asking me about how I turn. And I've skied since I was five. And it was the first time in a long time I, I was like, I'm, I don't know how I, how I turn. I, and I had to like think about what I was doing with my body to actually turn on a pair of skis because it was unconscious competence. Then I had to rewind it to a conscious competence. This is where we've been. This was like the world we got thrown into was a world of having to live with conscious competence, thinking through all of this. Then on top of all of that, we felt the stress of losing income. We started hearing numbers, um, all of the, the details about how transmissible this thing was. And, and as I watched all of this, what kept going through my mind is that we've, we've been thrown across the threshold. And so in that first episode after the pandemic, I went on to speak about the hero's journey, or as Joseph Campbell talks about it, the mono myth. And in his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, this is where he talks about crossing the threshold. And for him, it's one movement in the larger framework of mythic storytelling. And in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, he observes there is a structure and a pattern to the great stories and myths and tales 
that have been told across time and across civilizations, no matter when they existed or where on the globe they existed. And he says that crossing the threshold takes the hero or the central character of the story out of their normal everyday life and into a new world. And this is where the adventure or the great stories actually begin. And so this is what Campbell writes about crossing the threshold. He says, the adventure of crossing the threshold is always and everywhere a passage beyond the veil of the known into the unknown. And the unknown is what lay just beyond the protected zone of the village boundary. It is only by advancing beyond those bounds that the individual passes, either alive or in death, into a new zone of experience. The folk mythologies populate with deceitful and dangerous presences in every desert place outside the traffic of the village. And then he concludes saying, the regions of the unknown are free fields for the projection of unconscious content. <laughs> you could just sit with that last sentence for months. But it was this idea that when you leave the familiar and you go into the unfamiliar, you encounter all sorts of difficulty and ultimately what happens is these places and spaces become free fields for the projection of our unconscious content, both the light and the shadow. Chris Vogler wrote a book based on the hero with a thousand faces and Joseph Campbell's research. And he called it the writer's journey. And he shows how to build a story according to the work of Campbell. And he too speaks about crossing the threshold. And he writes this, Crossing the threshold is when we enter a strange no-man's land, a world between worlds, a zone of crossing that may be desolate and lonely or in places crowded with life. You sense the presence of other beings, other forces with sharp thorns or claws guarding the way to the treasure you seek. But there's no turning back now, and we all feel it. Heroes, he says, heroes don't always land gently. They may crash into the other world literally or figuratively. This is the image I shared at the beginning of the pandemic. The image of going into something, the unknown, a new zone of experiences, places outside the normal traffic of the village, a strange no man's land, a world between worlds. This is where we went. And to use Vogler's language, we didn't land gently. Like we crashed into this world. And this is where we still find ourselves. No one alive had been, had crossed the threshold just one year ago. And in many ways, we're still in this place. We're still in this in-between world, in this no man's land. And even though we crossed the threshold ago, or a year ago, we know that this story is still being told in some ways. Because the story doesn't just end when someone crosses the threshold. That's where the story and the, the real action of the story begins. It's when we or the hero of the story are thrown into the new world. And it's after the threshold, according to Campbell's storytelling arc, that there's a period of testing. So you're in a new world, but the rules are all different. Who do you trust? What makes sense? What works? How should you think? What should you do? All of it's brand new, and you are figuring out how, not only how the world works that you're in, but you're also figuring out 
in this storytelling structure who you are. Now, this crossing of the threshold and this testing that's inevitable, inevitable leads you on a downward trajectory. It's leading you in some places to a place that you don't want to go, but you take it, you go down until you finally hit bottom. This is what storytellers call the ordeal or the death. But it's in that ordeal and in that death that there's also a reward, which is the next stage, the reward that in your pain, in your ordeal, in your death, you learn and find something new. And it's something that can only be learned through difficulty and pain. From there is the road back. This is the, another stage. Struggle is not necessarily over, but you have learned a thing or two about this new world and how to move and live in it. And you've learned it the hard way. And this is what leads to your resurrection. So resurrection is you're getting close to the end now. Now you've been remade. You've been reborn. You've died and come back to life. You are transformed. And this leads us to the final stage which, as Vogler calls it, is the return with the elixir, or as Campbell calls it, the freedom to live. And this is, this last stage, this is what I want us to consider and reflect on. Because when the hero returns to the village from the other world, that is the world that they left when they crossed the threshold, when they return to that village, there's a sense that they have brought something back with them that can serve the village. And it's not until they went on the descent to the death that they were able to return and serve. But by the way, think about all the movies you've seen. This is like every single Disney kids cartoon. This is the story arc that they follow. Like the movie Cars. If you've ever seen it, there's Lightning McQueen. He's a famous sports car. And he, we'll fast forward the first part. He crosses the threshold by crashing into Radiator Springs and going to court and being sentenced to fix the road that he completely and totally damaged. So that's that's his threshold. And so then he goes through the whole ordeal. He's like losing his sense of who he is and his identity. And he finally hits bottom. And it's when he hits bottom that he begins to wake up that everything he was pursuing in his life, which is winning and fame and everything else, that's not ultimately what matters. And it's right about this point that he then has his road back, which is him going back to the racetrack. And there's the the race that he's in with only two other racers. And he's going to win. But then he slams on his brakes and he takes the loss and he helps the king across the finish line because now he knows like, oh, wait, there's something else here. That's his resurrection. His transformation is going across the finish line behind the king in finishing in third. And then that transformation is what brings him to a place where he can now serve. And so what does he do? He moves back to Radiator Springs and he serves the village by putting up his, basically his headquarters there and Radiator Springs returns to its former glory. I'm telling you, this is Disney's formula. And every single movie, some people call them coming of age films, Every single Disney cartoon follows this because we intuitively know this story to be true. When we hear it, something in us says, yes, I believe in this. This is the monomyth that Campbell uncovered. This is what every civilization, no matter where they were in the world or when they existed, they told these stories. 
And I point all of this out because one year into this, one year into this pandemic, there seems to be a little glimmer of light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. Maybe I'm speaking too soon. I really hope I'm not. But there does seem to be maybe at least an opening up in sight. And what I have found is that when I read about the potential like kind of slimming down of the pandemic or the pandemic coming to an end is that almost every article I read when it talks about a return to normal, the word normal is in quotes. I'm actually doing air quotes as I record this, even though you can't see them, but the word normal is in quotes. It's almost like a, a, a nod to the fact that everyone knows things will be different, but how they will be different is anyone's guess. And there has, understandably so, been a lot of conjecture about the what the world will be like when we go back. But maybe, if we consider the hero's journey, maybe there's a more helpful question we can ask. Because I think a lot of those articles are asking the question, what will the world be like when things go back to normal? And the reality is, none of us have a say in that. I mean, maybe a little bit like in our world, but we don't, no individual has a say in exactly how this is all going to play out. So maybe if we consider the hero's journey, a more helpful question will be, it could be, what will I be like when the world goes back to normal? Rather than ask, what will the world be like when things go back to normal? Maybe we can ask, what will I be like when the world goes back to normal? Because as we observed at the beginning of this episode, this season has done something to us. We were thrown across the threshold. We were, as my spiritual director says, carried by unseen forces to distant shores not of our own choosing. We are not just going to a new place. There's also the potential that there is a new place within us. So what will we be like when the world returns to normal? And while we don't get to choose the journey that we've been on, we can choose to surrender. We can choose how we will respond. We do have agency when it comes to who we will become in this season. So as we sit here one year later, May we continue to consider how we will remember this season, how we will hold the future, and ultimately recognize that we've been caught up in a story far bigger than ourselves so that we might ask, what will we be like when the world goes back to normal? And my prayer is that we will take time to stop and consider these reflections that we will come to see that while this season, this pandemic, this awful virus is not what we would have chosen for ourselves or our world, that we would always remember God wastes nothing. And this too can be integrated into our collective stories in such a way that we will discover wholeness and healing. And in that, that we might become those who are a healing presence in our world. And with that, we come to the end of this episode 76. We will be back in a couple of weeks. 
and I will see you then. But until that time, as always, much love and peace be with you.